of every word ever written debating the essence of film, by far the most influential articles are still François Truffaut's 1954 essay, A Certain Tendency in French Cinema, and from 1975, Laura Mulvey's Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. Truffaut was still only 21 years old when the future filmmaker formulated the revolutionary theory of the auteur. Simply put, prior to Truffaut's essay, films, while occasionally accepted as art, were for the most part regarded as products of the studios, and whatever critical attention they attracted, focused on the story and the stars. Truffaut's essay shifted that focus from what was on the screen to who was behind the camera. The director, not the studio and not the star, was the primary force in the creation and realisation of the story. Truffaut's theory argued a direct cause and effect link between the director and the meaning of the film, which gave rise to and explained the resulting adjectives of Fellini-esque, Bergman-esque, Wellesian and Hitchcockian. With the focus of attention now behind the camera, Laura Mulvey looked back through the camera and what she saw on the screen was a male gaze. Using the films of Alfred Hitchcock as her primary example, Mulvey's groundbreaking article detailed how much men not only dominated the making of films, but their point of view determined the content. Moreover, the male gaze determined the presentation of that content. With films made predominantly by men for men, women were on the screen for the pleasure of men. In Hitchcockian cinema, the fixation was the woman. Woman as object, woman as spectacle, and woman as victim. While men were the active agents in Hollywood stories, what Mulvey revealed was the male gaze rendered women passive. Way back in the early 70s, 80s and 90s, before Martin Scorsese was belatedly but officially inducted into America's pantheon of great directors, Scorsesean was an easy description. It referenced films that focused on violent, criminal, Italian-American Catholic men. But for any artist to grow, she or he must find new ground. And in explaining Scorsesean today, the definition widens to encompass, amongst other things, Irish-American masculinity, American history, spirituality, materialism and identity. In other words, the longer a career goes on, the more difficult it is to define it. Another strong line linking many Scorsese films is the often withering, verbal, emotional and physical mistreatment of women. Think of the women, or minors, portrayed by Ellen Burstyn in Alice Doesn't Live Her Anymore, Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver, Cathy Moriarty in Raging Bull, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio in The Colour of Money, Barbara Hershey in The Last Temptation of Christ, Jessica Lange, Ileana Douglas and Juliette Lewis in Cape Fear, Sharon Stone in Casino, Michelle Williams in Shutter Island, and Margot Robbie in The Wolf of Wall Street. But in 1993, with the release of The Age of Innocence, a whole new analysis of Scorsesean had to be opened. You see, I've told all my friends, just as you've asked. Yes, I couldn't wait. I mean, I wish it hadn't had to be at a ball. But even here, we're alone together, The worst we? of it is that I want to kiss you. And I can't. <laughs> with the exceptions of Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore and After Hours, no other Scorsese film has placed so many women at its centre and in so doing consigned the male figure to its margins. Adapted from Edith Wharton's Pulitzer Prize winning novel from 1920, The Age of Innocence takes place in the 1870s and tells the pitiful tale of Newland Archer, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, 
as head of one of New York's most revered families. Newland is engaged to Mae Welland, played by Winona Ryder, whose own family is equally respected. But even before the engagement is officially announced, Mae's cousin, Countess Ellen Olenska, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, returns from Europe and it is for Ellen that Newland truly falls. And then his love is reciprocated. Superficially, it may not resemble Scorsese's gangster pictures. But when you examine how Scorsese tells the story, you can see the similarities. Did you tell Ellen as I asked you to? No, I didn't have a chance after all. She's my cousin, Newland. If others know before she does, it's just that she's been away for so long. She's rather sensitive. Well, of course I'll tell her, dearest, but I didn't see her yet. She decided not to come at the last minute. At the last minute? She was afraid her dress wasn't smart enough. We all thought it was so lovely, but she asked my aunt to take her home. Mean Streets, Goodfellas, Casino, Gangs of New York, The Departed, The Wolf of Wall Street. They all display a fascination with groups, cliques, sets, social orders and subcultures. In a word, tribes. Think of the way Scorsese amasses detail upon detail, either in close-up inserts or long tracking shots, placing us in bars, nightclubs, waterfronts and office floors, giving us layer upon layer of music, clothes, shoes, ties, hats, gloves, cars, furniture, food, drinks, cash and cocaine. It's not just for show. It's to build up and reveal complex power structures. The background is so filled out that the film can be read as an anthropological study of that particular social strand. Here is Scorsese talking to Charlie Rose. That's the other thing about the book. The way she laid out the society, the tribal, she used the word tribal right. a number of times and we use it in the film. And I'm fascinated by, by different cultures. I'm fascinated by the sense of refinement of a culture. And then you take this idea, you take this incredible passion the two of them feel for each other and they can't consummate it and you put it in the middle of a chessboard in a way and they cannot, they cannot do what they, what they want to do. Although the novel is by no means autobiographical, Horton was born into the same social circle of which she wrote and she clearly drew on elements of her own life plus her observations of New York to tell her story. Most famously, Horton used her own aunt, Mary Mason Jones, as the basis of May Welland's aunt, Mrs. Mingott, played in the film by Miriam Margulies. Then, for the central characters of Newland and Ellen, Horton drew upon her own past. Horton had endured a very unhappy marriage of 28 years, which she came to see as a microcosm of polite society's stifling conformity. With this in mind, we can now see Countess Zelenska as Horton's non-conformist self. And that detail is brought into sharper relief when we remember that Wharton had gone to Paris in 1913 to escape New York's conservatism. As for Newland, he was drawn from Wharton's fear of what might become of her if she had stayed in Manhattan. In addition to all that, Wharton's novel expresses the very strong desire amongst Manhattan's aristocrats to protect their city's heritage and traditions against what they deem to be decadent European morals. This, even though New York's elite fixated on all aristocratic things from across the Atlantic, including the morals. Before Scorsese embarked on his film, there had already been two adaptations of Wharton's novel. One a silent production from 1924, the other, ten years later, starring Irene Dunn. How long is your visit to be, Countess Olenska? Oh, I've come home to stay. Oh, but I... I should think you'd feel more at home in Europe, having spent most of your life there. Oh, no, no, I never felt at home like this. 
All my years abroad are a kaleidoscope. All my school days at the Sacre Coeur, and galleries and churches and public gardens, and following the season here and there. And suddenly, my childhood was over. Over? Yes. Little girls grow up when they get married. Well, I grew up. Neither adaptation was successful nor interesting. Yet, steeped in film history as he is, it should come as no surprise that in making his version, Scorsese drew on several films that tackle similar subjects. Here is Scorsese again, talking about the first time he saw William Wyler's The Eras, an adaptation of Washington Square, written by Wharton's great friend, Henry James. Well, my father took me to see The Eras yeah. uh, back around 1950 or 51. I didn't really understand all of it, it was nine. But one thing I did see, and that was Olivia de Havilland and her father, the relationship between the two, and this uh, wonderful scene where Ralph Richardson explains yeah. to her in the drawing room that uh, Montgomery Clift can't be after her to marry her for uh, her ability, her beauty, first of all, because you're very plain, he explains, yeah. and also you're not very witty. He finds me pleasing. Oh, yes, I'm sure he does. A hundred women are prettier, a thousand more clever than you have one virtue that outshines them all. What? What is that? Your money. Father. You have nothing else. Terrible thing to say to me. He really hates her. And I remember, despite the fact that he was so polite, Ralph Richardson, yeah. and she was so proper, and the room had such wonderful things in it, uh, and they had such wonderful clothes on. I remember how, how shocking that was to yeah. me for a father to tell his, his child. Yet, their behavior was so proper. Yeah. And I never gotten over that tension of seeing that. It's refined violence. It's emotional and psychological violence. Scorsese spent his youth watching movies. So it should come as no surprise that his adaptation is informed by other great films and filmmakers. The likes of Orson Welles' The Magnificent Ambersons, which was based on Booth Tarkington's novel. Letter from an Unknown Woman, which Max Offels had translated from Stefan Zweig's novella. Lucina Visconti's version of Giuseppe de Lampedusa's The Leopard. And Stanley Kubrick's interpretation of William Makepeace Thackeray's Barry Lyndon. Just as The Age of Innocence sits in Scorsese's canon, Barry Lyndon is a film all too often overlooked within Kubrick's career. Yet, it is the one Kubrick film to which Scorsese returns again and again. And of which he says, it is a terrifying film because all the candlelit beauty is nothing but a veil over the worst cruelty. But it is real cruelty, the kind we see in everyday polite society. Scorsese could just as easily be speaking of the Age of Innocence. Obviously, what all these films have in common is literary tradition, which is quite interesting considering Scorsese's formative years. You know, I come from a working class family. My mother and father weren't well educated. I was second generation, I guess, uh, Italian-American. And uh, they were, they, there was no tradition of reading in the house, no books. Being working class family too, they didn't have enough money to go to the theater. So theater wasn't an option. Um, live stage shows and that sort of thing, but the, it was more of a visual tradition. I was taken to movie theaters a lot. Uh, also, being a sickly child uh, with a very severe asthma, I couldn't play sports. So again, the movie theater. Um, of course, I read in school, etc., books in school and that sort of thing, but along with the films, uh, there was also the advent of television. So it was mainly, mainly uh, um, visual literacy was what was happening at at that time to me. Very clearly, Scorsese is visually literate, or as I prefer to say, cinemat, by which I mean he uses images and sounds, 
camera movement, framing, lighting, colour, editing, dialogue, ambient noise and music to tell a story in ways a book cannot. That is not to say he violates the original author's intentions. In adapting Wharton's novel, Scorsese made a very important but simple decision by keeping her voice by having Joanne Woodward do the narration. Here is Scorsese talking to Kent Jones on the Criterion Collection Blu-ray Special Edition. Why couldn't we have a taste of what it sounds like when you read mm -hmm. aloud? I don't know. I'm just, it just seems to me that the words are beautiful. Who is speaking? And I never thought of that. Mm -hmm. Somebody's telling me a story. I don't understand. Yeah. So why is it a woman? I never thought of that. Well, first of all, it's written by a woman. It seemed kind of odd to have a man's voice to it. Woodward's delivery is so carefully considered, the opportunity to draw out the differences between what she is telling us and what Scorsese is showing us is never missed. Take, for instance, the moment Newland and Ellen have tea on a veranda and agree that their social contact is at an end. That is what the narrator tells us. But what Scorsese shows us is a series of images of Newland and Ellen as she gets up to leave. As she does so, Scorsese dissolves to a wide shot, but Ellen has already faded from the screen. And then he dissolves to an even longer shot, this time of Newland alone. And then he too fades from the screen, and his vanishing is synchronised with this line. But he could not live without seeing her. In other words, regarding Newland's status in New York society, he will soon become a ghost. It also means that very subtly, Although Newland is the film's central character, he is not only surrounded by women, but his story is told by a woman. Which means, the way Scorsese tells it, it's not really Newland's story at all, but rather a story about him. Wharton may have felt otherwise, but what Scorsese seems to be saying is that for all the patriarchy of 19th century New York, for all the assumptions that men ran the social register, this strand is in fact invisibly regulated by women most visibly Mrs Mingott, and most imperceptibly Newland's fiancée, Mae Welland. Without ever raising their voices to make themselves heard, all these women choose their words and gestures very carefully, wait for the precise moment to deliver them, and without any of the men ever noticing, the equilibrium is maintained. An equilibrium, I stress, is not one that liberates them, but one which nonetheless continues an order within which they know how to operate. A case of better the devil you know. Newland thinks he is a free man, campaigning for Ellen's peace of mind. But really, it is May who better knows the rules in the game. And it is she who is the true gatekeeper of Newland's social standing. By the time Newland realises this, he is literally decades too late. And so, when the film reaches its sad and sorry conclusion, he regrets never having openly loved Ellen. And also realising he never achieved his own freedom. In this way, Newland resembles a lot of other men in Scorsese's films. Whether we are talking about Travis Bickle, Jake LaMotta, Henry Hill, Teddy Daniels or Jordan Belfort, they don't change. The only thing they might achieve is to make a discovery about themselves. I'm an average nobody. Get to live the rest of my life like a schnook. Given the frequency with which Scorsese's characters end up right back where they started, when and if they ever have such an epiphany, they slip back to their old ways. Meaning that Scorsese's male gaze is a critique of male behaviour. But in the end, I wound up right back where I started. I could still pick winners, and I could still make money for all kinds of people back home. 
and why mess up a good thing? And that's that. When it was released in 1993, The Age of Innocence came as a major work from a master filmmaker. And over the last two decades, it has only improved.